Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Who comes to speak before Queen Hippolyta, imperial leader of the Amazons? Um, my name is Scott Smallstig. I'm from the Muncie, Indiana Chamber of Commerce. I am Queen Hippolyta. Kneel before me, bug-like noodle man. Sure thing, Your Highness. I was asked to meet with you about relocating your new headquarters in Muncie. We have some great industrial parks I'd like to... Silence! Before any man speaks to me, he must eat the raw, quivering heart of an adult horse. Uh, I take a statin? We have learned this word, and we know of your puny weakness like a scuttling cockroach. Please sign and initial this waiver, indicating you were offered a fresh horse heart and elected not to eat it because you have the spirit of a baby fruit fly. Fair enough. Can I get back to talking about what I like to call Muncie living? I haven't mentioned the top-notch symphony or the rollerblading on the greenway. Silence! Calliope, read them the list of our demands as Amazons. We require open carry laws for bow and arrow, open carry laws for spears, open carry laws for lances, curved swords, straight swords, long knives, short knives, double-sided axes, single-sided axes, bolos, nunchucks, warhammers. I get your drift. I think I can speak for Governor Holcomb and say a big yes to all that. Who is Bubblegum Whole Foam? No, Governor Holcomb. Eric Holcomb, he's our leader. Excellent. Upon my arrival, I will kill him and take his tiny sack of man treasures to impregnate Katniss Everdeen, who will rule with me for 100 years as my best girlfriend. Certain aspects of that plan may be unworkable. Do you deny me my Katniss Everdeen, worm boy? It's just that she's not a real... Kill him! You know what? Now I've got one of those cluster headaches. Do any of you have some leave? And give me some of that Muncie guy's blood to wash it down. No way we're moving there. In fact, let's stop giving them free two-day delivery. And now a tiny useless man with a mouse dropping for a heart. Colin McEnroe. I I resemble that remark. All right, so yes, there's been an awful lot of talk about Amazon and Amazons uh, in the news. Well, mainly Amazon, actually, in the news, especially these days. Um, But we're not talking about the company. We're not even talking about the river. We're talking about the the legend, except it's not strictly a legend, from whence all of that verbiage flows. We're going to talk about the Amazon women. Um, We're going to talk about what they were in legend and then what we know of them in reality because, yes— there is a reality. Uh, and then towards the end, we'll talk a little bit a little bit about how they manifest themselves in modern culture. There's obviously one very prominent example. Anyway, let me tell you who's going to be doing the talking. Joining us uh, from KPBS Studios in San Diego is Walter Penrose, Jr., Associate Professor of History at San Diego State University and the author of Post-Colonial Amazons, Female Masculinity and Courage in Ancient Greek and Sanskrit Thought. Uh, and joining us by phone, Adrienne Mayer, folklorist, science historian, and research scholar at Stanford University. She's the author of The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across uh, the Ancient World. So I want to begin with the legend and then move towards the historical reality. Um, Adrian Mayer, maybe you can uh, kick this thing off for us. Um, what, uh, Before we get to that historical reality, what was uh, in the ancient world the legend of the Amazons? 
Well, uh, the Amazons in Greek myth and uh, oral stories, Amazons were fierce warrior women dwelling in exotic eastern lands around the Black Sea and beyond, all the way across Asia, a mysterious land to the Greeks. Um, they were the mythic arch enemies of the ancient Greeks, um, the greatest heroes of Greek myth, Heracles, Theseus, Achilles. Every one of them had to prove their courage by uh, a battle with Amazons or actually a duel with an Amazon queen. It's interesting, we have the names of, of all the Amazon queens, Hippolyta, Antiope, Penthesilea, but we also have the names of more than uh, 200 ancient Amazons from antiquity. That shows just how popular those stories were. And Amazons played an important role in the legendary Trojan War. They fought as allies of the Trojans, so they killed a lot of Greeks there. Um, that's where Achilles and Penthesilea had their duel. Penthesilea lost. Um, the city of Athens itself, they believed that their first uh, citizens, that their founders, had been victorious over a powerful Amazon army uh, that had actually invaded Greece. That's a, a tale from the golden age of myth, but they believed in it. Um, every man, woman, boy, and girl knew Amazon stories by heart, and of course they were just wildly popular in ancient Greek uh, artworks, sculpture, paintings, and figures uh, in, on pottery. Um, I want to come back to that uh, whole idea of, of everybody knowing about it. But, uh, Walter Penrose, um, I, I want to get you to emphasize something that Adrian is also talking about, which is that the unlike a lot of foes who might be depicted in legend, my sense is that the Greek legends about the Amazons were, for the most part, admiring, right? It was uh, they weren't uh, disgusting, depraved, debauched, inferior. If anything, they were superior, Yes, uh, the Amazons uh, were uh, considered to be valiant foes by the Greeks. Uh, I think the Greeks were fascinated with the Amazons. And uh, the Amazons, however, did in Greek legend um, feminize the men that lived in the areas where the Amazons lived. So that would be, uh, you know, in the area of ancient Turkey, along the coast of the Black Sea. And so the Amazons were considered to be faster, better, and smarter than men by the ancient orator Lysias. Uh, they harnessed the use of iron. He said they were the first to do so, and that was how they defeated their enemies. Also, they were uh, more ingenious, and so... Uh, and uh, what happened is that... Uh, the Amazons um, did, as Adrian said, um, eventually march on Athens and uh, were defeated by the Greeks, right? Um, but the Greeks uh, were the only men, according to the story, who were uh, valiant enough to defeat these women. And there's even one version of the legend preserved by Plutarch in which the Athenians can't defeat the Amazons. Uh, they have to sign a truce with them, and then the Amazons go home. You know, Walter, a, maybe a hint, and, and I don't want to get into the historical reality yet, but, but a hint that maybe some of this is informed by historical reality is that in some of the legends, when the uh, Amazons attack Athens, they have Scythians at their side, right? That's correct. And uh, without getting into the historical basis, um, the Greeks also preserved legends that the Scythians uh, were the first to harness the use of iron weapons, right, and to um, smelt iron and, and make weapons from that. And uh, the 
compare if we compare the legends of the Amazons to the legends of the Scythians, just those preserved in in Greek folklore, um, the Amazons do the same things as the Scythians. As I've said it in my book, there are parallel narratives. So the Amazons, you know, harness the use of iron. They conquer great swaths of territory. And the Scythians do the same thing. Uh, all right. So remember those Scythians. Or we're going to be coming back to them. Um, Adrian, I want you to maybe elaborate a little bit more on uh, uh, you, you see the ancient Greeks. They wouldn't have regarded the Amazons at all as a legend, right? They wouldn't have regarded them uh, as part of what their historical heritage. They certainly um, believe the myth uh, about Amazons uh, uh, invading Athens. I mean, they they portrayed that glorious moment in their remote uh past uh, that was depicted on the Acropolis, uh, on, the, on the great Metopes on the, uh, on the Acropolis, so that everyone could see uh, the, the images of Greek warriors uh, fighting these um, war-loving Amazons who were the equals of men in courage and skill. Uh, they also, uh, Amazon battles decorated the great shield of Athena inside the Parthenon, and there were public paintings of of uh, Amazons fighting Greek warriors, um, they certainly uh, uh, depicted them as, as Walter said, as noble and attractive and even uh, desirable. And yet, they're they're deadly, deadly uh, foreign women, barbarian women. In antiquity, barbarian meant any non-Greek. Um, so uh, they certainly did depict them as heroic, brave, uh, desirable, and yet. Uh, we don't have one. We don't have a single story or instance in Greek art where uh, an Amazon is allowed to emerge victorious. They're all doomed to uh, die at the hands of Greek heroes. That's not so unusual. They're foreign enemies, of course. Uh, but the the Greeks certainly had a feeling of awe, respect, uh, and fear. Uh, kind of mixed feelings there about these strong women. Right. I don't know where I read this, Adrian, but I feel like I read somewhere that um, in, in Persian and Egyptian legend there were Amazons or Amazon types too, but they were maybe depicted a little bit differently and, and weren't always so ultimately vanquished. That's right. Uh, the Greeks did not have a monopoly on, on Amazon-like women uh, in, in uh, traditions and stories and myths. There, there are uh, stories about warlike women across the ancient world, in, from Egypt to Persia and Central Asia and all the way to, to India and China. I think Walter can talk about India for sure. Um, but the stories are very different, very radical, radically different outcomes. In, instead of the typical Greek zero-sum game, where there can only be one victor, um, these uh, other cultures, non-Greek cultures, talked about Amazons and warrior women uh, in the same way, they, they admired their bravery and skills, uh, but they describe a kind of rapprochement between equals in the stories of the combat. Um, they're so equally matched that no one can win. Uh, usually, the duel ends in a in a, um, in a in a draw, and sometimes the the two former enemies decide uh, that they'll go on and as companions in love and war and fight other enemies together. So in the in the non-Greek stories there's a little more of a um, little, little more of openness to egalitarian relationships. 
So, um, Walter, I'm a man of a certain uh, age. I certainly grew up reading about Amazons, but I read about them in books of mythology. I read Wonder Woman comic books, too, but I read a lot of books of mythology, and I regarded Amazons as strictly as part of mythology. Uh, now, I was a boy, but I wouldn't be all that different, say, in 1960 or 1970 from a typical American scholar of antiquity or even a lot of Western scholars of antiquity who would have said the same thing about the Amazons. What's weird is there were a bunch of people who weren't saying that. They were Russian scholars. So explain that dichotomy. That's right, Colin. Uh, so going all the way back to the 1880s, we have a very interesting character named Count Bobrinskoy. Count Bobrinskoy, as far as I'm aware, was the first archaeologist to uh, find and excavate graves of quote-unquote Amazons and uh, women buried with, with weapons, it, were Sisythian women, as far as we know now. And um, so while in but this he published a book about this in Russian, it was not uh, well known in the West. In fact, uh, at the same time, right, uh, the Europeans uh, were focusing on, on myth, right, thinking about myth as something that was uh, part of the Greek national consciousness, right, in a nationalist sort of way and ignoring the rest of the world. And so um, what happened is that uh, many uh, skeletons that were found with weapons were just assumed to be males, even even in Russia. Um, but as time went on, Soviet scholars uh, began realizing uh, that there was a way to sex skeletons, right, um, using uh, the bones and uh, pelvises and, and the cranium. And uh, so, you know, by the 1950s, the Soviets were on to the fact that there were, were women warriors that were buried. And some of the excavations that were done have been reassessed. And we now know that there were considerable numbers of women warriors among the Scythians and Sarmatians, something like 20 to 37 percent, given the uh, excavation site. And so while the uh, you know, Russians and the Soviets uh, after them were uh, busy digging up graves of, of Amazons, right? Um, and what they called Amazons. Uh, the you know, in the West, uh, scholars were denying that the Amazons ever existed. Particularly in the 1980s, there was a real pushback against uh, feminism, right? And, and and the women's lib movement. And uh, scholars, particularly in the fields of classics, argued that the Amazons were an imagined other. That the Greeks had developed this idea of the Amazons in their head to. Uh, define their own norms through inversion, through an opposite. So, but then, okay, let's, Adrian, let's turn the dial way, way back to Herodotus. So Herodotus is writing uh, histories of the ancient world as a member of the ancient world, but he's kind of, he's got kind of a, a vivid imagination. He's a little bit of a gossip in some ways, but I mean, he's got them, right? He's got a story uh, of Amazons. What is the history of Amazons per Herodotus? Well, it's, in, it's interesting that uh, Herodotus was, uh, even in antiquity, sometimes um, considered to be uh, uh, a writer who exaggerated things or maybe uh, repeated travelers' tales. But um, archaeology over the past few decades is, is proving Herodotus right in, in many of his statements, especially about Scythians, uh, the excavations of Scythian kurgans or grave mounds. Uh, are showing that he had a lot of details right. And it's interesting, uh, while Walter says that, uh, points out that the, uh, the Soviets were already on the idea that there really were warrior women among the Scythians, 
uh, because of the graves they were finding. It's interesting that Herodotus, Strabo, um, Diodorus, and, and even Plato and other ancient writers were describing real women among the nomadic tribes of Scythians who were living the lives exactly like mythic Amazons, but on the steppes of Eurasia. So these ancient writers were... Uh, they had no doubt that Amazons really existed because they they were describing uh, the, the lives of these warlike women uh, who who rode to war alongside the men, uh, went hunting, uh, rode horses, um, were skilled with bow and arrow, um, just as deadly as the men. So even in antiquity, historians were writing about warrior women among the among the Scythian tribes who, who matched the descriptions of. Amazons in myth. So, and, and Adrian, um, Herodotus, he uh, has a story that may or not may, may or may not be true. He doesn't start them out there in, in the steppes. Uh, he starts them out, I think, in Turkey, right? And they get it's like the a version of the Amistad story or something. Don't, don't they get captured and put on some boats that they take over? Um, he sort of uses as a um, as a push off point. Uh, this is a story that he said that he learned while interviewing people along the Black Sea, around the Black Sea. The Greeks had, had started uh, trade with Scythians who lived around the Black Sea area. And from, uh, from these people uh, who were semi-settled, uh, Herodotus actually learned about um, stories of, of uh, other Scythians who lived further away. Uh, beyond the Black Sea. And one of the stories that Herodotus tells is, is really, it's a charming love story. It's supposedly the origin of a tribe called the Sarmatians, who uh, were um, one of the uh, large groups of Scythians. He says that, uh, he uses as the starting point um, a mythic story that Greeks had attacked and captured uh, some Amazons from the southern coast, as you said, southern coast of the Black Sea, that would be northeast Turkey, um, and, and put them on their ships. But the, the women somehow got a hold of their, uh, of their weapons, uh, rushed the Greek sailors, overcame them, killed them all, and now they're, they're stuck on a boat in the Black Sea. They're, they're horsewomen. They are not sailors. So they're just blown about. Uh, they don't know how to sail, and they end up in the north co- northern shores of the Black Sea where other Scythian tribes live. They come ashore. They find some horses. Um, they have their weapons, and now they, they take up their old life uh, there and begin attacking uh, the, the uh, tribes of Scythians that live around there. And those Scythians send out a group of young men um, to track these, these women. Um, they think that uh, they'll make fine wives. Um, so the, the Herodotus gives all the details of how they they don't even speak the same language, really, but they're able to communicate enough to uh, start meeting romantically in the woods, and they finally decide, hey, let's run away together. They do. Um, they run uh, north of the Black Sea and uh, form their own tribe, and the Amazon women say, of course, we will be raising our boys and girls exactly uh, alike. Um, we believe in egalitarian lives, and these men agree, and they become a very famous and notorious tribe of uh, the Sarmatians. And this, this is a story from Herodotus 
Herod- Herodotus did not make up the story. It may be an, uh, a foundation story, but he, he heard it from uh, people who lived around the Black Sea area. Um, it's, it's a very interesting story because it emphasizes the egalitarian nature of Scythian life. Um, and that just makes sense for tribes that are living in such a harsh and rugged landscape uh, and at constant war just makes sense to raise your boys and girls alike. They dress alike. They all learn to ride horses. They can all handle a bow and arrow. They can hunt. They can defend the tribe. It just makes sense. Right. So let's take a, just a moment or two before we go to break uh, to talk a little bit more about what these Scythians are like. As I read about these Scythians and, and a possible subset of them, maybe these Sarmatians, um, I don't know if uh, either of you guests are either watch or read Game of Thrones, but they sound an awful lot like the Dothraki in Game of Thrones. They're really horse-based. They're nomadic, um, uh, maybe unlike the Dothraki, nomadic tribes, particularly in an area like that. Uh, resources are kind of scarce. You've got to become incredibly tough in order to exploit all those resources successfully without any kind of agrarian society. So, But, Walter, there's other things about the, the Scythians that, once again, seem like they might have flowed from the pen of some fantasy uh, writer. Among other things, they used cannabis, right? Yes, yes, that's correct. Um, they Herodotus tells us that after a funeral, right, they would put cannabis on hot coals, and they would uh, they had a tent, right, that they would uh, then sort of get into the tent, and so the vapors would fill up the tent, and then they would cure their grief with the cannabis, and then howl with joy. And archaeology has confirmed that uh, that Scythians did use cannabis. Uh, we find uh, residue uh, in paraphernalia. And uh, so this is actually something that uh, it is not a, um, a tall tale and uh, it is something that, that it is true. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here. Um, we're going to talk, come back and talk a little bit more about the purpose of these stories. I mean, one reason that they're told is because they're true. The other reason that any story is told is because it's us in some way. Welcome back. This is a show about Amazons, the actual Amazons. I should say, last week we did a show about women in pants, and this show is an outgrowth of that because, in fact, one of the things that uh, Josh Nalea, who's the uh, episode producer on both of these shows, discovered in the Women in, in Pants show is that that these Amazons, who A, existed, to our surprise, and B, kind of wore pants or shorts or jorts or something. Uh, and uh, the carryover, uh, maybe the through line between all those things is uh, that they're there's um, uh, an early Catherine Hepburn movie called The Warrior's Husband, I think it's called. Uh, and she plays an Amazon and she wears pants. And then she just kept wearing pants. Um, all right. So uh, we have the two really do have the two foremost scholars uh, about the Amazons, uh, as far as we can tell. Uh, Walter Penrose, Jr., associate professor of history at San Diego State University, author of Postcolonial Amazons, Female Masculinity and Courage in Ancient Greek and, Greek and Sanskrit Thought, and Adrienne Mayer, folklorist, science historian and research scholar at Stanford University, the author of The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World. Before we get into the purpose 
of these stories, what they what they said to the people who told them and listened to them. Um, Adrian, uh, let's stay with the historical reality for a second. Adrian, if we know that the Amazons were Scythians or some subset of Scythians, some matriarchal part of the Scythian world, what does that mean that they look like? Do we know what a Scythian of that period would, how that person would appear? Uh, most of the uh, excavations of Scythian kurgans, uh, the, they hold the remains of Scythian male and female, uh, some of them warriors, most the majority of them, and so far about 300 of uh, more than a 1,000 um, excavations have turned out to be female burials. Those are skeletons, so we d- can't really recreate uh, their facial uh, features, but we do know that they, ha- they were very robust. Um, they were uh, generally taller than the ancient Greeks um, by some inches, uh, um, and that uh, they were... Uh, had had evidence of riding horses for uh, most of their lives, starting when they were very young. Now, there have been some frozen mummies found uh, further east in, uh, uh, in Russia and Siberia, around that area. And their uh, facial features are actually preserved. Uh, one thing we do know is that all of Scythia, which uh, vast territory that that's uh, stretched all the way from the Black Sea to uh, the Great Wall of China. Um, Actually, that wall was built to keep out the nomadic tribes. Um, We know that that was just a sort of a cauldron of so many different languages and ethnic groups. Uh, There are just really lots of descriptions of of what Scythians looked like from Roman, Greek, and Chinese chronicles saying that they had dark hair, dark eyes, uh, light hair, green and blue eyes, very, uh, very um, diverse group of people. All right. So um, now with all that in mind, um, the, the mythology, Walter Penrose, uh, the mythology that I grew up reading wasn't just about these this matriarchal society of warrior women or even a society of warrior women in which there really didn't seem to be any men at all and women who burned one breast off so they could draw the bow better. And there's all that stuff. But there's also this sense of real antipathy towards men that seemed to be part of at least the Amazon legend that, that I grew up with. Was that part of the legend that the Greeks would have known at the time? Yes, I mean, we find various manifestations of, of this aspect of the legend. Uh, so uh, Iskalus, for example, tells us that the Amazons were man-hating and man-less, right? Uh, a statement that might liken them to, you know, say, the ancient equivalent of lesbians, uh, perhaps, right? Um, and uh, But in other uh, versions of the myth, we are told that they were man-loving, yet male infant-killing. And so I think the and that's uh, the version that was preserved by Hellanicus in a fragment. And that I think we have to understand as meaning that they did, you know, have sex with men, but then they killed the, uh, uh, you know, male infants and they raised the female infants. And so, uh, you know, so these stories we can't confirm uh, or deny, but um, but yes, I think the Greeks thought that uh, 
the any society perhaps where women were uh, had equality with men was uh, perhaps foreign to the Athenians in particular. And so I think when they uh, thought about warrior women, uh, perhaps they kind of made up these stories in their mind because they they were threatened. That that's one possibility. All right. I, I want to come back to some of these uh, stories about um, uh, who who they copulated with and why, uh, but we'll, co- we'll come to that in a second. But, Adrian, one um, idea that you've posited is that the, the Amazon myths somehow or other illustrate a conflict in the Greek psyche, and a yearning at some level, if only a mythic level, for some kind of gender equality. Can, can you talk about that? Well, as I mentioned earlier, everyone was aware of Amazons, and everyone knew the stories of Amazons uh, and they um, in Greece, and they saw pictures of Amazons um, over and over in the in the uh, stories. We hear that uh, Amazons are sort of doomed to die. There's no Amazon that dies of old age. They always die in battle. Well, that's exactly what a Greek warrior hopes for, to die in face-to-face battle. So right there we can see the respect and awe that, uh, that the Greeks had for them. Now, when the Greeks found out about Scythians and they learned more and more about their uh, relatively egalitarian society, they were amazed and, uh, and, as Walter said, probably threatened by that idea because they kept their women fairly constricted in, indoors. They lived indoors. They uh, were doing household chores, weaving and uh, caring for children, nothing like the life of Amazon, uh, Amazon women or Sith- real Scythian women. Now, some scholars have said that the, the Amazon stories, you know, with all these uh, gruesome details that you were just mentioning, uh, perhaps that was propaganda to discourage Greek women from wanting to be like Amazons. And yet, that even that is undermined by the by the fact that a lot of the images of audacious, bold, courageous Amazons appears on pottery that was used exclusively by women. So women had pictures of Amazons on their perfume jars, on their jewelry boxes, uh, on various other pieces of pottery that they uh, that they alone used, that men didn't use. So there's even um, some evidence that that little girls played with Amazon dolls. If you go to the Louvre, you can see a few of them in their collection. They're terracotta dolls with movable arms and legs, just like a an ancient Barbie doll, uh, but it's an Amazon wearing a helmet and have, carrying weapons, and some of them you could even dress in different costumes. Now, this, this doesn't sound like propaganda against uh, being like an Amazon, so there's something going on there in gender relations in ancient Greece that we... We just uh, have to say it's a mystery to us. Um, Adrian, uh, 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 this story so imbued Greek society in all the ways that you just talked about, all this sort of Amazon alia uh, that uh, one could own and one could see all the time. And, And my sense also is that there was an almost reality show like fascination with Amazon sex too. Like what what were, I mean, we talked about maybe uh, with Walter how maybe they conceived children and who they conceived them with and what they did with the male children that they didn't want. I kind of like the Strabo version where they just gave them back to the to, to the guys. Here, you take the male children. We don't want, we don't want those. Um, <laughs> but, but there was also just sort of like, well, I mean, who do they really like having sex with? So what did the Greeks think about that? 
Well, you know, the Greeks were not shy of, uh, about talking about homosexuality at all. We all know that, um, both male and female homosexuality. Um, so I think if they assumed that the uh, that the mythic Amazons or Scythian women were um, lesbians or bisexual, they might have mentioned that. But there's not one ancient Greek author that mentions uh, the, the, um, those kind of sexual relations among Amazons or Scythian women. That, so we don't know. I mean, it's entirely possible. We just don't have evidence. Um, but this, uh, the idea that, uh, that they gave away the uh, male children after um, uh, meeting on a seasonal basis with other tribes uh, to have feasts and parties and um, have sex and go home pregnant, um, that's actually, uh, that actually has a, a ring of truth. We, we know from comparative anthropology that that did happen among Scythian tribes. It, it just makes, once again, makes a lot of sense. It's logical. And even the uh, idea that they gave the boys to the, uh, to the other tribe, um, that seems to reflect a, uh, a custom of fosterage. Um, it's a way of making uh, alliances, a way of cementing alliances, and they actually did practice that. In fact, medieval Europe... Uh, practice that too. Uh, you can find fosterage of, of boys being sent to live with other other um, allies uh, as a way of sort of ensuring that you'll remain allies. That um, happened in Wales and Northern Europe too. Um, as as we're talking about this, you know, Walter, a few minutes ago, I engaged uh, in an act of Amazon stereotyping uh, and uh, and false stereotyping at that. I mentioned the legends that I grew up with of the women who cut off one breast uh, or burned off one breast uh, so that they could draw the bow better. Uh, although, uh, as Adrian suggests, uh, skeletons of, of Scythian Amazons suggest maybe some bow-leggedness from horseback riding, they don't suggest anything like this uh, draw-the-bow-better breast story, right? Uh, no, they, they don't. Uh, and uh, so one thought I have about the term Amazon, which does mean without a breast, um, is that this might be a way that the Greeks referred to these women a as masculine, right? Um, because in ancient Greece, there was a strong, particularly in Athens, there was a strong division of labor, uh, right, where men uh, were in the public sphere, they made war, women lived in the domestic sphere, um, taking care of the household of children, um, sewing and weaving. And so uh, what I think the term Amazon may refer to is, is masculinity in women. And my point of comparison here is a Sanskrit text in which uh, women are, who were masculine are called breastless. And so there's a direct comparison made there in the Sanskrit literature. And, uh, uh, you know, so this is one, one way we might think about it, um, of the term. And, you know, not being something about physical uh, attributes, although uh, the Greek author Hellanicus does tell us that, you know, he... he derives an etymology of the term saying that the ah uh, the alpha primitive means you know not or without and uh, matzone is is a variant of, of mastos from which we get our word mastectomy meaning breast and so he does tell us that they cut their breasts off uh, to pull the arrow back and so um, 
that's there you have it. All right. Um, we're going to be taking a break pretty soon and maybe talking a little bit more about modern depictions uh, of Amazons. But, um, Adrian, before we do that, um, one thing that I discovered through preparation for this show and through reading about you uh, is there's an Amazon Facebook group uh, that's for uh, ancient and modern uh, Amazons. Uh, there's several people who are regular listeners to this show uh, and even friends of the show who are members of that group. But I found myself wondering whether there are sort of Amazon reenactors. I mean, there are reenactors of everything else. There's people who dress up and act like Vikings uh, and and reenactors of every imaginable war. Are, are there, have you, Adrian, come in contact with people who, who dress up or outfit themselves as Amazons? Uh, absolutely. Um, there are several groups of uh, very skilled horsewomen who practice uh, horseback archery, and they uh, they can recreate all the all the skills that the that the Scythians uh, were famous for. Uh, one of them was the Parthian shot, where you can actually be galloping away, riding a horse bareback, and shooting your uh, arrow be- at, at people chasing you or at targets behind you. That was much dreaded. Uh, by any cultures that had to fight the Scythians. Uh, and these women, uh, I know there are groups in Washington State, in Oregon, in Texas, and in California. They're also in Iran, Japan, um, Hungary, various places around the world. And many of them are members of my Facebook group. Yeah, it's a, it's a great group. So, um, Adrian Mayer, thank you so much. Folklorist, science historian, and a research scholar at Stanford University, author of The Amazons, Lives and Legends of Warrior Women Across the Ancient World. We've got one more segment to go here. Uh, we'll get to that in just a second, so stay with us. Today's show is produced by a puny man, Josh Nalea, and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is an Amazon, or at least a piranha who swims in the Amazon. The part of Bill Curry was played by Linda Carter. And now, back to Colin. Yes, uh, here's the final segment uh, of this fascinating show about uh, Amazons. Amazons who uh, were a reality, a powerful legend and a reality, uh, based on all the modern archaeological evidence. Uh, So we have one more person for you to meet. Uh, That's uh, Sean Marlon Newcomb, actor, writer, director, and co-founder of the Artemis Women in Action Film Festival. Still with us, Walter Penrose, Jr., Associate Professor of History at San Diego State University, and author of Postcolonial Amazons, Female Masculinity and Courage in Ancient Greek and Sanskrit thought. Um, so before we talk to either one of you, let's uh, hear um, a movie courtesy of Sean, not an entire movie, let's hear a small segment uh, of a movie from the um, documentary um, uh, field of the 2015 Artemis Women in Action Film Festival. Uh, uh, this is a winner for Best Documentary uh, about four women boxers. I have a Mexican-Irish background. I could either drink you under the table or I could beat the hell out of you. But um, I don't drink, so I guess I'll beat the hell out of you. When she was little, one of those boxing, those punching bags, she asked me, Mom, why don't you get me a punching bag? Well, I'm sorry I didn't get it, because she was very high strung, very spirited, and I think she needed to punch something. Perfect professional record. Please welcome 
Maureen, the real million dollar baby, I thought, oh, she'll do one fight and it'll be over. And that's what I've been telling myself ever since. But I'm resigned to the fact that this is what she wants. So, uh, Sean uh, Marlon Newcomb, uh, tell us more about this film festival, the Artemis Women in Action Film Festival. Hey, Colin, and hey to Adrian Walter. Um, we started the festival in 2015 with the notion of how do we, in some way, create a celebration and create a community of people who support and promote these types of movies, movies which specifically feature a woman as a lead or a co-lead in a physically empowered or action role. You know, subsequently, we expanded to have also women who take action in terms of the public sphere, in terms of the political sphere, and in activism. But the centerpiece is kind of like with the Amazons, the action heroines. Um, so for the last three years, we've had the festival, and what we do is whether it's a film about an action heroine, an ancient warrior woman, a contemporary boxer, MMA fighter, a uh, woman in the military in first response, or a stunt woman, those are the kinds of films that we ask to be submitted, and then we curate and choose the best of the best and show it to everyone. And additionally, we also honor actresses uh, and stunt women and also men and women, because it's important that we know that, uh, show that men support this, who create that kind of film. And then we have panels about the uh, ancient warrior history and stunt women and women in VR, that sort of thing. So, um, Walter Benrose, I know you've been uh, on these panels and been uh, a- an advisor at the film festival. Um, you know, a name that keeps coming up, but we haven't really mentioned it here s- uh, so far, is uh, Themyscira. Uh, this is the place uh, in the Wonder Woman movie that came out this summer. Uh, this is the, the, the home place for Wonder Woman and all of her Amazon uh, friends and family. Uh, I think I'm told in the Justice League of America movie that's also coming out this year, there's some uh, rumored to be some Themyscira uh, sequences. So, Walter Penrose, what's Themyscira? Themyscira in ancient uh, Greek texts was a the city, the fabled city of the Amazons. It was not on an island like in the movie, uh, but however was on the mainland on the south shore of the Black Sea and what would be northern Turkey today. Uh, it was a city where, where Amazons, that only Amazons lived, and uh, it uh, is... Um, an area that uh, we um, find it of interest, right? It's the one area where we don't, or have not yet, I should say, have not yet found burials of warrior women, um, but but hopefully that will come because in most of the other areas uh, associated with Amazons, particularly around the Black Sea, uh, the Caucasus Mountains, for example, Scythia, Zaramesha, burials of warrior women have been found. Sean, Marlon Newcomb, one reason they haven't found them in Themyscira is because they haven't looked very much, right? You're planning to do something about that? Yeah, I'd actually, uh, and both Walter and Adrian are the, the inspiration for that, for having read their books and having seen it noted that no one is really, that we know of, have gone, has gone and tried to find whether there is anything there, anything that we could see that would perhaps prove some of the stories. I mean, the things I found compelling in both Walter and Adrian's books the fact that it's not just that the Greeks identified these tribes, but also that the Persians and the Chinese and the Indians also identified these tribes and often identified them in that location around the Black Sea area. So as a filmmaker, I thought, well, this would be a great thing to do if we could tell this story, bring these, these great legends out, and see to what extent those legends could have uh, were true or have any 
you know, partial or pieces of truth to them, and it would just be a great way to be able to get these stories out and have people know more about some of the, what I found, really amazing uh, things that were attributed to them that I found in both books that I read. You know, it, it does seem, Sean, that as uh, archaeology marches on, and, and maybe, I mean, Walter made the interesting point earlier that uh, a lot of times, uh, maybe in the early uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, uh, people would find skeletons of warriors and just assume they, they had to be men, right? They were warriors. Uh, and that was before they started sexing skeletons, uh, as Walter said. But now, with people's antennae up a little bit, they're maybe more likely to look for this kind of thing. I mean, wasn't there recently a, a Viking find? Yeah. 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 Talk, talk about that. Just saw that. I uh, just read that, and I'm, uh, I'm sure Walter and, and Adrian could say, give a much more uh, uh, detail about this. But the the find was the the bones had been uh, had been found earlier, I believe, in the late 19th century, and it was clear from the burial that this was a high status Viking warrior, and it was assumed, as it's always assumed, that okay, I find uh, bones, some weapons, some shields. That's a dude. So we're just going to assume it's a guy. Um, but uh, of course, now in modern times, where you can do a lot more of the, uh, you can do more DNA testing and sexing of the bones, it was realized that this was actually a woman, and so this great Viking warrior of high status was actually female. And a lot of the stuff that's happened in the last 30 years has shown that, you know, we had a woman who came to our festival who I just think is amazing, and she passed away just before our last festival, Janine Davis Kimball. And she did a lot of research into the Scythian and Sarmatian warrior women and finding and showing that a lot of these bones were actually the bones of women warriors, not simply male warriors, because you found weapons. So that's, that's a lot of the reason why you know now there also seems to be something in the zeitgeist there, okay, we're now aware, like you say, our antenna are up about this. So it's a good time to go and see what more we can find, and frankly, if, if any of these, if there's any truth to some of those stories and those legends, the the voices of these women should be heard. And so it's up to us to bring those voices and make them heard. You know, speaking of the zeitgeist, I mean, obviously your film festival uh, exists to explore a certain aspect uh, of that zeitgeist. Uh, you heard the documentary uh, clip about the boxers uh, who are, uh, it's a kind of an interesting connection too. Uh, the boxer, I think we heard was Maureen Shea. Uh, yeah, yeah, who's Maureen Shea. Who's and Jill Morley, by the way, is the director of that. She's an amazing director. And she was Hillary Swank's sparring partner uh, to get ready for a million dollar baby, which I suppose you could sort of throw in there in there. But it feels like, you know, that whole question of um, can you have a woman action hero who is no more sexualized than maybe a typical male action hero? But it does feel like in the um, alien movies, particularly Sigourney Weaver putting on that big container mover exoskeleton uh, and kicking ass. And then Linda Hamilton, especially in the second Terminator, movie where she's got these really pumped up guns. I mean, not guns that you shoot, but guns on your arms. Um, You know, there's there's the beginning of that, right? Yeah, definitely. I think that what what you want ideally in in film and in any storytelling is that that women have the same opportunity and agency as characters as men. So you don't want to desexualize them, and you also don't want to hypersexualize. You want them to have the same. I mean, James Bond is a suave and attractive action hero. You want that opportunity also to have a female James Bond of that sort or a female quirky superhero or a female of any type. So we're starting to see that. And as you get more stories and more characters, now you're going to hopefully have a greater array of different types of female action heroes. So you see that, you know, you have the Linda Hamilton and, and Sigourney Weaver. And I think those two films and those two characters really kind of 
broke a mold and awakened a lot of the stuff that we're seeing now. And so now that you have Wonder Woman, who is kind of was really enjoyable because she was just an old-fashioned do-gooder action heroine, and that was fantastic. Um, and then you'll get, you know, maybe an Atomic Bond or a Furiosa who is maybe has you know, some damage or some complexity to it in terms of what motivates the person. So that's really the goal, to be able to just have the same opportunities to show women in action that you have with men. Right. I mean, I was saying to, before you came on the show to uh, to Adrian and Walter, uh, the Scythians strike me as very much like the Dothraki in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Game of Thrones uh, obviously has Brienne of Tarth, who's played by uh, Gwendolyn Christie, who I think is six foot three inches tall. Yeah, um, yeah. But also Arya, right? The uh, Arya is, I mean, still, each of those women, no matter how hashtag woke that series gets, they're defying some kind of convention, even within that fictional universe. I think I think Game of Thrones is extraordinary. Besides the fact that I think it's one of the greatest works of TV art ever, it also shows an array of strong female characters. I mean, basically, what what are we coming to? A season of showdown between two great queens. So you have, yeah, you have uh, Brienne of Tarth, you have Arya, you have Cersei, who is a bad, you know, uh, quote unquote, depending on so people probably root for her as well. I think she's a great character. You have Mother of uh, Dragons, who's coming to sort of save the day. So you have all different types of women in action, women who take action in that series. I think it's extraordinary, actually. So maybe the whole thing is is coming to fruition. Thanks so much, uh, Sean Marlin Newcomb, actor, writer, director, co-founder of the Artist, Artemis Women in Action Film Festival. Thanks to our other two guests, too, Adrian Mayer and Walter Penrose, Jr. Thanks to Josh. We'll be back tomorrow. Queen Hippolyta, Lord of the Amazons, to whom am I speaking? I bought a Samsung S7 Edge from you on August 25th, but it was not in good condition. So I emailed your customer service, and they were so rude. And Did you know that people who purchased that item also purchased the arrow you shoot through the phone and kill an idiot with? Uh, I'm sorry. 